Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold, today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I do want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show economically viable. Uh, for the second hour, our sponsors are Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. Uh, I'm really happy to have Dennis Marker return with us. Uh, Dennis, uh, just basically not even scratched the surface on his book, 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism. Uh, and I'm really pleased to have with me Jeff Deist, uh, Ron Paul's chief of staff, and also for the first time, Glenn Downs. He's the chief of staff of uh, U.S. Congressman Walter Jones. He's a nine-term Republican uh, who represents uh, coastal North Carolina, and he sits on the Armed Services and Financial Services Committee. Um, prior to, to, because this is Glenn's first time, I'll just uh, go through a little bit more of his background. Uh, prior to joining uh, Jones uh, staff, uh, Glenn was a legislative assistant to U.S. Senator Louch uh, Faircloth, uh, where he handled uh, banking and financial services legislation as well as other budget and tax-related matters. And Glenn was formerly chief of staff uh, to the lieutenant governor of North Carolina and former assistant cabinet secretary in the administration of North Carolina Governor Jim Martin. Uh, prior to entering government and politics, he was the financial officer of BB&T, now one of the nation's largest financial holding companies spanning most of the southern southeastern United States. And 
Uh, he has uh, degrees from uh, North Carolina at Wilmington and uh, also uh, in economics and also a master's degree in economics from North Carolina State University. Well, welcome, Glenn. Welcome, Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Welcome, Jeff, and uh, welcome back, Dennis. Thank you. Uh, before we went to break, we just basically got started with this 15 Steps to Corporate uh, Feudalism uh, book and uh, scratched the surface. We talked a little bit about uh, the um, about the media and the role the media has in the propaganda that we that we see uh, in our system. Uh, so what I want to do is is talk about uh, some of as much as we can over the next half hour the 15 steps that you mentioned, Dennis, and then get um, both Glenn and Jeff uh, to respond to their views. So I think one of the most important ones certainly has to do, and, and certainly we've seen uh, foreign trade. Where I live here in Queens, New York, we've seen. Uh, lots of companies over the last 15, 20, 30 years or so disappear, set up shop overseas. Um, you're, you're really critical of policy that has, that has encouraged uh, corporations to close down shop in the U.S. and move overseas. Talk to our listeners a little bit about that. Then I'd like to, and, and maybe if you can tell us what some of the policies were that, that uh, in your view, caused that to happen. Then I'd like to get the response from Jeff and, and Glenn on that. Sure. Um, first, let me say, I, I mentioned in the book, I believe that this concept of global free trade is one of the greatest cons put, put upon the American middle class in, in the history of the middle class. And um, Ross Perot, we mentioned Ross Perot earlier, he mm-hmm. was right. And, and the reasons are fairly simple. I mean, you simply cannot have global free trade and, and just remove all the tariffs and say, if, if you can find a worker that can work for $3 a day in whatever, in China or wherever else, and, and, and he can survive on that, and then we can ship the products over here, the people at the top, what I call you know, the corporate feudalists, they make much more money with a system like that. Mm-hmm. But what happens, of course, is the middle class in this country, what do they see happen? They see their, their status continue to go down. And so what we've seen for the past 30 years is this diminishing of the, the middle class. So mm-hmm. just think about it, you know, just, just from a common sense perspective, can we possibly expect uh, a worker in the United States to be able to survive on what a worker in Honduras can make? Mm-hmm. Well, no, we can't. And so even if you add the transportation cost, it's still cheaper for a company to say, well, why don't I ship my manufacturing to Honduras? I can ship my products back here. And I'll still have people at Walmart selling the product. But in mm-hmm. terms of the people manufacturing the product, which is where you actually generate wealth, you're shipping that overseas. Mm-hmm. And so those are the policies have, have made this happen. And it would be simple to change it. I mean, one thing that is so foolish is we have a system now where we have a country can say they're going to protect their trade and that we say our trade is open. And so maybe they'll say, if you want to ship an American product to my country, you've got to pay 30% duty to get it in here. Mm-hmm. Where we say, if you manufacture it in your country and send it over here, we'll let you in for nothing. And it's just foolish. So mm-hmm. that, that system needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So there are the arguments against that, um, against that policy. Glenn, um, would you have some different views, perhaps, on this whole issue? Well, there's probably uh, – uh, thanks again for having me on, Jay. Uh, Dennis and I, our, our views probably are not as divergent as you might initially think. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, you know, 
free trade in the, in the sense that that was laid out by say David Ricardo years ago, you know, makes a lot of sense. You know, comparative advantage and one country raises apples, another raises oranges. But we we have we seem to have morphed into a system where what's labeled free trade is really a managed trade system, and these a free trade agreement would need could be done in one one page. We have free trade between Virginia and North Carolina, and you don't need multi-thousand page documents to ratify mm-hmm. that, and you don't need you know, giant bureaucracy set up to manage that either. Uh, so so we, what we've got is something clearly other than what was envisioned by economists way back in the day. Sir James Goldsmith, who was considered to be a great corporate raider, wrote a book probably 20 years ago. He's now deceased called The Trap. And he was in favor of trade, but he said you can only have free trade with countries that have got sort of similar systems to you. So some of the points that Dennis made, I, I frankly don't disagree with. I'm not mm-hmm. sure I'm entirely in agreement with him, but he, he, he's on to something. Obviously, mm-hmm. what we're doing now is not working. Yeah, for sure. Well, what about the argument, uh, and, and Jeff, I'd like to get your take on, on this issue as well, but there is an argument certainly to be made that uh, the consumers benefit uh, it may be at the expense of the of the uh, of the American worker, but that uh, they get some of it back at least through uh, through lower cost products. Um, how would you respond to that, Dennis? I would say that I would I would disagree, and and the reason is that the consumer benefits short term, and so while this whole process was happening, as, as Ross Perot called it, the giant sucking sound of our jobs overseas. For a while, we got to buy a cheaper product at Walmart. But what we're seeing now, of course, is over time what happens is you lose the manufacturing capacity in the country, you lose the wealth of the country, so there's less and less people able to go buy those products made in Honduras. Mm-hmm. And so overall, even though it maybe looks great for a couple of years, five years, even ten, you would just see a gra- well, that, as we're looking at, the gradual diminishment of the U.S. middle class because we've lost our manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, certainly one of the reasons anyway. Jeff, uh, your thoughts on this topic? Well, Jay, there's a lot of assumptions inherent on both sides. I yeah. mean, at this point, I, I do agree that we have a, a mess. We have some sort of managed trade. Uh, you know, people used to use the term mixed economy uh, as a halfway point between uh, pure, I guess, laissez-faire capitalism and pure socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we're, we're certainly somewhere there in the middle, and and. I'm very, very sympathetic uh, to your guest's arguments uh, that you know, we have sort of a, a corporate oligarchy. We have obviously deep involvement between the, the uh, financial and corporate interests that, that uh, weigh on Congress and administrations to determine what our trade policies are. Um, you know, uh, the, the, and, of course, we also have those same financial and corporate interests weighing very heavily on the other side of the equation, which is not the good or service being sold, but the currency Mm-hmm. being swapped for it. Mm-hmm. And as we know, both the euro and the U.S. dollar and the Chinese uh, yuan and, and, uh, you know, and, and other currencies are manipulated in many senses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that being said, uh, I think the left-right dichotomy is no longer helpful or useful. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we have to have some shared uh, assumptions to, to set any kind of policy, whether mm-hmm. it's nonpartisan or not. And and I, I do think that, that Dennis has some assumptions I wouldn't share, or it sounds like he does, 
um, number one being that, that that the economy, world economy, is sort of a zero sum game, and that if 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 manufacturing widgets goes off to Honduras, mm-hmm. that that that's it, and that that's you know, and and well maybe maybe it's better if we're manufacturing uh, uh, you know iPads or something here, mm-hmm. something something uh, something more sophisticated than widgets. Um, and number two is that you know the argument Jay that you brought up. I, I would also say there's a there's a flip side to the consumer side, and what you're really what you're really doing when you impose a tariff on an incoming good in the U.S. is, is, is you know, you're, you're, you're levying a tax on, on the buyer. And at mm-hmm. some level, you know, that goes, you know, not everyone's buying a yacht. Some people are buying $10 sneakers at Walmart. And if they become $12, that's, that's you know, there, there's, you have to look at, at obviously the long-term effects on everyone. That's, you know that's that's the the thing about economics. You can always see the short term effects on a particular group, but the real mm-hmm. the real uh, problem is to see the the long term effects on on everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is. Uh, we are in a situation where currencies are manipulated for sure. I mean that's always been true when we were on a gold standard as well, uh, but less so I would argue. But but certainly right now it seems to be a beggar thy neighbor sort of a situation where countries are are desperately competing with one another to try to gain manufacturing and exports um, Dennis, do you see do you see some some issues here with respect to the to the currency manipulation various countries around the world doing it no oh sure i i see so much that um 22 years ago all the people i played tennis with called me mr gold because <laughs> i had already decided <laughs> and see where things were going, and so they used to they used to talk about that um, deri- derisively. It's not so derisive anymore. But um, the question, you see, for me, what I'm doing in my book and what I'm doing in my life is my goal is to protect the U.S. middle class. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the idea of global marketplace, you know, it, to me, I'm not as concerned if the Honduran worker is doing better than he was. Mm-hmm. What I'm concerned with is whether or not there is a U.S. middle class, because I think that that is, that is the goal that I want. I don't want to have a country that is controlled by a few corporate feudalists. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way to preserve that wealth is in manufacturing. That's where wealth is generated. And, and sales is never, you know, sales of products made in Honduras is never going to generate enough wealth to, to create and maintain an American middle class. Mm-hmm. Certainly, wealth is a creating industry. I would argue also as as one, and maybe I'm a bit partial on this one, but uh, because we have mining, maybe I'm maybe I'm falling into the same trap. We have we have mining company sponsors. I look at uh, the mining industry as a as a wealth creating industry, and and I know Dennis that you have been involved in the past with uh, environmental protection. I don't know if we want to go in that direction. It's not something that you've talked about, but certainly mining companies need to be mindful of of the damage they do on passing those costs on to on to future. Uh, future uh, uh, citizens and uh, grandchildren and so forth. But what about um, the, what about mining and uh, these basic industries? So, we're how can we? I mean, protection. I, you know, I have such a mixed feeling about this because I I see that a lot of times in the old days, at least, the big steel mills would get you know would profit from protection as well as the workers. Right? You want to eliminate competition. Uh, I don't think, Dennis, that you're suggesting eliminating competition. Why are you looking for a, an even playing field with with other countries? Is that what you're looking for? That's, that's that's exactly right. That is exactly right. But but as we have to consider, if we want as one of our goals to preserve the middle class, because we could say an even playing field is simply absolute global free trade. 
Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that I don't think there's anyone in the United States that can compete with a, uh, with a worker that can work for $3 a day. You can't mm-hmm. live on it. And so you might be able to be middle class in China for $5 a day, but you can't be that here. And so in terms of, of how we um, structure the system, that has to be taken into effect. Unless, yeah. unless we want to bring the U.S. worker down to the level of the workers in third world countries, which I personally don't. I know um, I, I know both Glenn and Jeff. I know Jeff better than Glenn, but I, I think I'm, I think it's fair to say that neither uh, Glenn or Jeff wants to see continue going on what's been going on with this demolition of the middle class and a ruling elite, a ruling oligarchy, as it were, almost, and and I think uh, getting richer and and more powerful all the time. So. Um, Glenn, how do you think we should proceed? I mean, I think we all have the same goal. I believe we do. So what would be your policy to try to to get us to do the same thing that Dennis wants to do, and that is have a vibrant uh, middle class? I think everybody recognizes the need for that, for the good of everybody, but, uh, but how do you get there, Glenn? Well, uh, you know, gosh, I think part of where we are is so pulling up tariffs and that sort of thing, just for tariffs' sake, is really responding to, I think, a symptom rather than a cause. And a lot of the causes, uh, uh, you know, beyond labor wage rate differentials and things like that, go back to Fed, uh, Federal Reserve and Federal Government policy uh, mm-hmm. that um, that have resulted, you know, this has been going on for 30, 40 years, and you mm-hmm. can go back to the very founding of the Federal Reserve, and you, you start looking at, all kinds of terrible misallocations of resources and all kinds of bad price signals and uh you know when you had your know, gold gets maligned a lot but the one thing that gold did in the, in the closing of the gold window stopped was was keeping these huge international imbalances from from arising in the first place mm-hmm. you know you 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 basically would have uh you, you, instead of having Shadow banking system and the like come up with with funding to to and and mercantilist nations come up with funding to allow their domestic industries to uh, get to develop these huge imbalances of trade. Gold would have been there would have been calls on gold at the gold window and there would have been revaluations of currency along the way. Mm-hmm. Now we've gotten so deep into this. I'm not very optimistic about uh, uh, because I know the way the mindset of policymakers in Washington are about preemptively, in advance of some sort of new calamity, uh, getting out in front of us because we've had such a misallocation of resources and people. Mm-hmm. It's to the point that people don't even understand the difference between productive and consumptive economic activity. Mm-hmm. So there are consumption goods up to and including big things like houses which have got economic utility, but it's, you're not creating anything. I think when you mine, you farm, you manufacture, that's the basis for people going out and getting their hair done and that sort of thing. But we've got such a misallocation of resources. I would say the first thing to answer your long-winded answer to your question, I said the first thing we need to do is to change the monetary policy of the country, mm-hmm. and I think that would be... Uh, that would go a long way towards beginning the process of unwinding this big, long, giant mess we've been in. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly if we look back at the last number, let's say 20 years or 30, if you care to go back to that uh, time, Dennis, we, 
you know, I can, the Federal Reserve under Greenspan pumped huge amounts of money into the system, lowered interest rates, encouraged Americans to buy exports from Chinese, and, and it was easy because people had credit. I mean, it, it, and now we've gotten ourselves into one heck of a debt situation. Everybody's indebted. I mean, I had uh, John Perkins on this show that talked about how America's policy overseas was to get third world countries in debt and they had to sell their raw materials. I think what's happened is we've done that to the American middle class now. We've gotten them, the, the banking system has gotten Americans so in debt that now they are owned, and this, I think, Dennis, is your feudal system. Is, 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 um, so what, do you see a role possibly from a macro position, Dennis, uh, that, that uh, do you, would you see some merit in what Glenn just argued? Well, I, I like to look at a simple solution, and I think one of the things that we miss in this country a lot, we don't look either at our own past or at what other countries do that are successful. So I would say we, we, everyone can agree, or at least I think most people can agree, that the height of the middle class was 60s, 70s. So you, we were talking about that mm-hmm. earlier. Yes. Jay. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is widely mm-hmm. accepted. So one of the things I would say is why don't we go back and look what we were doing then mm-hmm. that worked instead of trying to say, well, what we used to do worked, and now we've completely changed it. So instead of looking what we did that worked before, let's go back and try to do something different. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing I would do. Mm-hmm. And, and the second thing I would do is, is look at countries now that continue to maintain a vibrant middle class and say, what are they doing that's working? Mm-hmm. So those are the two first things that I would do. And as I said, for some reason in this country, I guess we get caught up with American exceptionalism to the point where we can't even imagine our own past. It's sort of like we're exceptional right this minute. But, mm-hmm. yes, we did things right in the past. Let's see what those were and see how many of those policies we can duplicate to, to bring us back to where we were. Well, uh, I think in your book, Dennis, you, you mentioned countries like uh, possibly Germany and France and Japan uh, as countries at least that have somewhat more egalitarian income distribution. My, my relatives are Swedish and Danish, so I guess I'm partial. But, but clearly, some of what they do has continued to work while our middle classes have continued to decline. So at least it's worth looking at what some of those policies are. Okay. Jeff, would you have something to add on this whole topic? I, I think sort of think you might agree with Glenn in terms of the Federal Reserve's role here, but, but go ahead. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, it's fascinating. Obviously, there's a lot of layers to the onion, but uh, uh, <laughs> as Dennis said, it's interesting to go back and look at some times when the middle class was, was more robust. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, hell, you know, Paul Volcker's still alive. We could, uh, you know, we, we could bring him back, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, there was the Volcker role. <laughs> you know, it used to, it used to be that, um, you know, you could, uh, 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 a, a young kid with a, with a uh, an old-fashioned passbook savings account could go get his 14 or 15 percent interest right at the bank, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, at just a local bank. But mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, uh, and, and of course, uh, the the cost of borrowing money and interest rates were at least somewhat based on the on the savings habits of uh, of depositors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the Fed just literally creating money out of thin air. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I. Um, I'd have to agree, and, and I'm all for bringing all kinds of Swedish values to America. Um, but, you know, uh, obviously, uh, um, you know, if you look at, there's still remnants of, of huge uh, Swedish immigrants in, in some of the Midwest states like Wisconsin and, and, and places like that. But, you know, I, I think first up is you got to get, uh, you got to get people smarter than me, and you got to get people smarter than the current makeup of Congress. And, and, uh, um, to start getting rational on things, and and you know maybe another thing that that the left and the right can agree on is that 
at this point, maybe the solutions have to come from outside of Washington. Mm-hmm. In other words, we have to stop looking at everything as a as a political problem or the a political matter. Yeah. We solved by politics, and maybe we need to start sort of turning our back on Washington and, and looking uh, outside for solutions. So you look for more decentralization uh, or local government solutions rather than, I doubt that that would be something that Dennis would necessarily agree with. Well, it's, it's not that I would, would disagree with, with local solutions, and I surely wouldn't disagree with looking outside of Washington. That's, mm-hmm. There's no doubt. But what I would say is, given where we are right now, as I talk about the corporate feudalism, the, that the corporate feudalists aren't going to simply say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll um, relinquish our power vo- voluntarily. Mm-hmm. That's never happened throughout history, and it's not going to happen now. And so the big problem we have right now is that so much of the con- our country's wealth is concentrated by a very small group of people who use that wealth to influence our our political decisions. Political system, yeah. Would would both of you, uh, Glenn and, and uh, Jeff, agree with that statement? That, that well, I, I I would uh, to this extent that um, that uh, um, we've seen this rise of of a, the merging of of business interests and state interests, and I'm, I'm a real capitalist, and this is what makes my blood boil because what, what's being passed off as capitalism is, you can call it corporatism or, or worse words than that, but it's in the economics they call it rent-seeking, and, and that's the highest return that, uh, of any kind of activity a lot of firms are engaged in now. I mean, it's not a, it's not a mistake. It's not an accident that uh, the public interest member on the New York Federal Reserve Board of uh, the Board of Governors, the Board of Directors, rather, of the New York Fed, is Jeff Immelt. So Jeff mm-hmm. Immelt from General Electric is supposed to be looking out for the interests of the little guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, that doesn't make a lot of sense, and we've seen more and more of that uh, happening. Mm-hmm. And so we have seen, you know, bailouts. Uh, front running of trades by uh, too big to fail banks, mm-hmm. uh, quantitative easing that's allowed the, the Treasury to sell bonds to uh, to, to large uh, uh, banks uh, one week, and then a week later they mark it up and sell it to the Fed. And uh, there's just a lot of the, the tarp was chunk change compared to the real bailouts, and and there has been uh, a disturbing trend in that in that direction. And, and then I also, just to, to take a slap at the, the class of people, that includes Jeff and I, so I might be taking a slap at myself, <laughs> but the, the people, the, the skill set that you need to either get elected to Congress or to get the job that Jeff and I have, there's no relationship whatsoever to having spent much time thinking about these issues at all. Uh-huh. So, so there's very little critical thinking on Capitol Hill, and there's just an awful lot of received wisdom. So people go to briefings that were set up by people that are already running the show, the powers that be, right. the powers that be on the left or right, and they, they were some wisdom is sort of handed to them, and that's how you could have situations like so many people that got elected uh, from outside the system, say in 2010, so very quickly come into the system, and they seem to have lost all their zeal for making radical change because they've had it explained to them. And uh, 
and, and they just don't have the background or necessarily the skill set to be able to discern and sort through some of these things. Yeah, it certainly would seem the case. Uh, the ideas that Dennis has in his book uh, would not go down too well with a lot of the people that control the system, and, and likewise with the views that both... Uh, both can, I, can, can I throw in one quick, uh, and monopolize the conversation, but one quick antidote. The, the, the Occupy Wall Street people came up to Capitol Hill en masse mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, and, and about 20 of them came and occupied our office, and I had a chance to talk to them, and, and after... They realized we agreed on about half of everything, and the other half we didn't disagree. We didn't agree on much. But I asked them. I said, "How successful have you been in getting meetings in Democrats' offices?" And they mm-hmm. said, "Not very, not very." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, I'll tell you why." And it's because it doesn't matter whether you're from the North or the South, or you're Republican, or you're Democrat, you're Black, you're White, you're Liberal, Conservative. If you work here, you've got one thing in common: the system's working for you. Yeah. Yeah. They, they want to blow the system up and make a radical change, and most of the people where Jeff and I work think things they might want to change which mafia families run into town, but they they don't want they don't want to give up mafia control. If you, yeah, I'm sure metaphors. there's a lot of that. It's it's a it's a pretty decent job in Washington, and and certainly Washington is thriving, uh, one of the few parts of the country that's doing extremely well. But, you know, Jeff, you mentioned uh, Paul Volcker's still alive, and it reminded me of one of Dennis's other major points in his book, and that is deregulation. Now, all through the time we deregulated the financial markets, Mr. Greenspan was very, very in, much in favor of uh, getting rid of Glass-Steagall. Um, and, and I don't know, I can, just, I can just say what I believe with respect to Glass-Steagall is if you're going to guarantee or if you're going to uh, provide insurance for depositors, then banks ought to have some regula- some some restrictions on how they how they lend money. And clearly, when Glass Steagall broke down, it allowed the banks to become promiscuous with their depositors' money. So I, I'm wondering, um, Dennis, uh, would you probably favor a return to um, uh, Glass Steagall? No, no question, no question. I think that's you know, as you say, the, the result. Some, a lot of these policies take years to see what happens. Glass Steagall is one. It took a very short time. And, and the people who criticized getting rid of it were right. And, and mm-hmm. so, of course, definitely re- return to Glass-Steagall is a, an obvious step that should be taken. Yeah, of course, mind. the financial markets, uh, the financial people, the powerful people in Washington weren't particularly keen on having uh, Glass-Steagall stick around. Jeff, you any, uh, what, what would be your response to that? Well, there's a couple other elements to it, though. First is that Fed member banks have an opportunity to get money at the discount window. Um, yeah. and, and in essence, uh, lend out money that they didn't have to attract from depositors yeah. the old-fashioned way. So uh-huh. sort of the mother's milk of the whole uh, um, uh, fractional re- lending system is, is skewed from the get-go. And number two, I would say that we're missing out on one of the greatest regulators of all, which is bankruptcy and, and, and insolvency. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, David Stockman called the 08 crash the BlackBerry panic because it is his strong contention that it wouldn't have spread to Wall Street, that mm-hmm. it was, excuse me, to Main Street, that mm-hmm. it was a Wall Street phenomenon, mm-hmm. and we should have let, um, uh, uh, you know, everybody else, the, 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 all the rest of the House of Cards fall like Lehman Brothers, and, and yeah. you know, that there is a, after years and years of, of, of currency manipulation and other interventions, you know, there's, there's bankruptcy was was just and bankruptcy mm-hmm. was right and bankruptcy is one way to to regulate the market oh. and, and to allocate capital where to to uh, 
to places where it's being used wisely. Well, there's there's so, so much more to talk about. Uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism by Dennis Marker. I would uh, strongly suggest people buy the book and read it. And uh, if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But read it and think about it. There's a lot of good points in there. I wish we had more time to talk to both Glenn and to Jeff uh, and to Dennis because we just barely scratched the surface. I mean, there's issues of unions and regulations and all kinds of things that Dennis brings out in his book. I know there would be controversy with Glenn and Jeff on some of these issues. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming on the show. Dennis, thank you very much for coming on, Glenn and Jeff. Uh, sorry we don't have more time. Uh, we'll have to maybe do this again sometime. Have all three of you back. We can have uh, a good discussion if you're willing to do it. So, that, so thanks to all of you. Folks, and, and don't go away. We do have to take a commercial break you, now, Jeff, and I'll be right back with Chen Lin. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. I'm really pleased to have with me um, one of my two partners, Chen Lin. He's been gone for a while. Uh, I think it's been several weeks since Chen was on this show, but he's just returned from uh, from Asia. He spent some time in China and Mongolia and um, uh, elsewhere, perhaps. Uh, welcome back, Chen. Thank you, Jay. Chen, uh, so where were you? I know you were in Beijing. I know you were in Mongolia. Did you visit any other countries? Yeah, I also went to the Philippines. In the Philippines, right. Yeah. Okay. And I think you were you were looking at a project for Oceana Gold, and you'll be talking probably to your subscribers about your uh, updating them on Oceana. A couple of other companies, I believe, uh, Prophecy Coal was another one you might have visited in Mongolia. Yes, yes. and CGA Gold. And CGA Gold. Okay, so you'll be updating your um, your subscribers on those uh, on those companies very shortly. And, folks, we do like to remind you that you can call Claudio Bossi uh, to subscribe to Chen's letter, Roger Wiegand's letter, and my letter, uh, and get a, uh, a low-cost introductory one-time-only uh, offer to see if, uh, if Chen's service, mine, or Roger's would be good for you. Well, okay, so let's talk about China. You were in Beijing. Uh, what did you learn about the, uh, the economy uh, and what's going on in China right now? What, what's your perception? Yeah, it's clearly slowing down. Um, I think it may slow down even you know, further than you know some people think. Uh, I talked to the you know people uh, who run their own business, small business owners. They're in pretty bad shape, I would mm. say. And uh, you the know, private they, sector. Yeah, private sector. They are, they expect like a, a quarter of them will now exist uh, 12 months from here. Wow. So, uh, you know, basically China has China unique problem. Okay, those private sector, they're very hard to get, get bank loan. Because banks like to loan to the government sponsors. You know, mm-hmm. the, they have an inexplicit guarantee from the government, right? So they, it's no brainer for the bank. Yeah. So, so they don't get, they get a private market, you know, they get like 20, 30% interest. Very, very high. So it, it's hard for them to compete with a state owned company, even foreign company. Plus oh. they have to go through all the corruption. So, in the government, so it's very hard, very harsh business. And plus, they employ about ninety percent of the people. So they employ ninety percent. Ninety percent, yes. So the so the private sector is being squeezed, and they control and they and they employ a large number of people. Right, exactly. So so that's why you know uh, I get pretty negative, you know, outlook. However, there are also opportunities. They're trying to going to have a new new government coming. Mm-hmm. This year, so if they can recognize that, they can shrink the government, shrink mm-hmm. the government sponsor enterprise, and then you know they can help to direct the bank to loan, you know, to open their book to loan to those uh, private business a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that can have some room for, mm-hmm. for further expansion. But I expect probably four or five percent uh, China's growth for for the next few years, if four not four or five percent. Four, yeah, about four, four to five percent. That isn't. Is that enough for China? Uh, it's hard to say because China is, um, you know, the one-child policy. So uh, they, 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 a lot of people are going uh, retire. So less and less workforce uh, yeah. in China. So we'll see. It's hard to say, but I don't, you know, don't expect uh, to grow at eight uh, percent. You know, for the, you know, you know, like that. Uh, continuing, it's uh, not sustainable. Yeah, it's interesting, Chen, because, um, you know, I mean, I had this notion in the past that China had endless numbers of workers, uh, that, the, that the salaries would be kept low forever and ever. But if you're saying that the private sector, 
which is the employer of most people, is being squeezed, then there could be some real issues there for, for a lot of average Chinese people. Then what is the government to do? Right. Yeah, that, 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 those will be issues, uh, will be challenges. So basically, uh, there are, one hand, you know, there, there's a less workforce, okay, coming. Okay, so in China, if you are a college graduate, very hard to find a job. If you are, you know, have no education, it's very easy to find a job. Right? Mm-hmm. We see though these, uh, news that, uh, you know, the college graduate went on to become a janitor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that, that's where the, you know, low-end job is. So there's a, relatively a lot of low-end job, but those are, you want to go higher, uh, it's hard. Kind of situation, maybe, you know, in, in the United States has some issues, similar issue too. Well, I, I was going to say, it sounds an awful lot like the United States. The kids go to college, they run up a fifty or $100,000 debts, and they can't find jobs. Right, um, right. You know, and of course, um, my views are that we should go to a more free market economy. And I think basically what you're saying is that may be good for China as well. Oh, yeah. So, you know, exactly. And then free market, I think, is good for everyone. So it's hopefully maybe the, the, the new leader recognizes and then they can do some, you know, they can do something to help those uh, private companies. But, you know, otherwise, uh, we'll see a lot of companies going out of business. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, it, it certainly doesn't come at a good time when Europe is in is in dire straits right now. Uh, they're in a recession. Um, you know, things seem to be slowing down in the U.S. as well. So uh, I don't know. So given that, uh, how do you how do you view, view uh, let's say the base metals? Then are you are you optimistic about the base metals given China's uh, decline? No, I have been shorting copper for a while, so uh-huh. I, I'm shorting copper, but I'm long energy. Okay, okay. because energy is different than base metal. Base metal is it's more for the it's construction, you know, mm-hmm. building construction. Energy is you know China's uh, automobile still increase at a very high speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the reason the increase slow down is because just the uh, city had too much traffic jam. Like in Beijing, it's much worse than. Uh, New York, for example, so they do not allow people to buy a new car. <laughs> oh, really? Is that is that what's going on there now? Exactly. You have to go through a lottery. You know, one in ten chance each year you can buy a car. So is that that's right? Why, that's why the car is slowing down. But still, this year is about thirty percent higher than last year. I heard. Uh, I just read a report that Toyota was up like well one hundred percent somehow. Thanks, but but in general, the auto market up about thirty percent. So you know you have all the car driving, even in the traffic jam, you slow down, you still need gasoline. So I'm relatively more optimistic in energy than than in base metal. Um, okay, well speaking of energy, there I know before you went away to China and want to find out if you're still if this is still the case. There were two. Two oil companies that you were extremely keen on, Mart, um, Mart uh, Resources, I guess it's called, and Pan and Pan Orient. Do you still like those two oil companies? Yeah, I still love them. You know, I just to my two two largest positions. Mm-hmm. I believe this month could be the month. I mean, we could have got the dividend from both companies. So mm-hmm. That would be very good. I can use a dividend to uh, reinvest to buy buy other cheap stock. There's a lot of cheap stock out there. Uh, if you consider how much uh, capital they put into the, you know, for the resource and how much earning power they have, uh, it's getting really cheap. A lot of stocks. Yeah, what Mart is doing? What in terms of what? What do you expect they they can do this year? They've given guidance in terms of what they expect to do cash flow wise. 
they basically last time we talked, they mentioning uh, they they getting fifteen million after everything tax expense royalty a month. Okay, fifteen million. That was like a Brent was uh, about one twenty. Now Brent is less than one hundred. I expect that to drop maybe to ten million. But still, it's a very very low cost producer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more than ten million. You know, it, it, the cost is a few dollars, so you can do your own cost calculations. Mm-hmm. Uh, even you know, the oil drops to even further. You know, another twenty dollars still have a lot of cash flow. Uh, they management has been, you know, mentioning they want to pay dividend. I think uh, the AGM is the end of this month, so I hope they they will announce dividend before the AGM. So that's the AGM for March at the end of this month. Exactly. Yes. And I know that one of the um, one of the constraints from Art was pipeline capacity. Any any news on that score? Because I think there was some some talk of being able to increase their pipeline. They could produce, sell more oil, and, and make more profits. How is that? Yeah. Do you have any news on that? Yeah, they, no, I don't have news. But they are still working with Shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they could have some news. I mean, I, they keep saying it's getting close, but, you know, just need a final signature somewhere. Sure, so sure. It's getting really close, but it's Nigeria. You have to be patient. You know, yeah. I hold the star for over two years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just hold on. I know it's a good asset. The, the oil well doesn't decline, which is very, very unusual in the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm holding it. Yeah, we might. Because every uh, we, day, it's the cash is increasing. Every yeah. day, it's, um, it's yeah. Crazy. We might mention uh, to our listeners that uh, Chen, you started recommending this stock to your subscribers at a lot lower price. It was uh, perhaps in the fifteen, twenty, thirty cent range, or yeah, I think fifteen, twenty cents. I don't quite remember around yeah. that range, but the around that range, and it's it's yeah. well over a dollar. Uh, it has been over a dollar. It's been back and forth. I don't know how has it uh, performed today. Yeah, it's a dollar and five. So dollar five, okay. And uh, we're just about out of time here. What about um, so? So you think we might also see a dividend announcement fairly quickly with Pan Orient? Right, they're closing the sale supposedly by the end of this week. Uh, they, I, I mean, I saw some research reports. They say or they said management is planning to issue special dividend after that because after that they have almost four dollar in cash and mm-hmm. they don't need that much cash. Uh, they. they Stock still has three forty. So you think about it. So just just all the other assets carry negative value. It's kind of amazing. But you know, but they think they don't need so much cash. Uh, they could e- easily issue a dollar dividend. I mean, depends on you know the, yeah. the condition. I would say. Yeah, you, you're not. I mean, has has the company guided in that direction? Have they talked about it, or is that just your speculation? I saw some research report saying that the mm-hmm. management is looking. At dividend, but there's what's no. What's the stock trading at now, Chen? That's three forty. Three forty. Yeah, consider I bought it well below, mostly below two dollars. You know, they got some dividend, get most of my money back. Oh my goodness, yeah, especially if you had purchased it at lower prices. Uh, really, really interesting, Chen. I mean, this is why you've been so successful. You're willing to go out and buy stocks that sort of scare the bejeebers out of a lot of people. Uh, I know that uh, just watching Mart, it's it's up and down. Uh, it, it moves a lot, uh, but it is a very, very interesting story, very compelling. If you can get comfortable, I guess, with Nigerian risk, I guess that's that's the biggest issue for most people. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time now. Uh, Chen, thanks for coming on. We'll look to have you on again very soon. All right. Thank you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and also uh, announce next week's guest. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I really enjoyed today's discussion. I hope you did, too. Uh, Certainly with Dennis Marker, in his book, 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism, we only talked about about two or three of those steps. I would urge you uh, to to consider buying the book, uh, read through it. Um, you may or may not agree with everything Dennis has to say, but one of the things I really enjoyed about today's discussion uh, with Glenn, uh, with Dennis Marker, uh, uh, Glenn Downs, and, and Jeff Deist uh, was that we had a civil discussion, I believe, with uh, different points of view, and I think this is certainly what needs to be uh, reinstated into the American political system. And honestly, I believe that uh, Ron Paul uh, has it right when he says that government gets in the way of civil discussions. You know, whenever government gets involved in something, uh, let's say they raise your taxes, <clears throat> excuse me, what they do then is pit one group of people against another group of people. Uh, and uh, or whether they, they pass a regulation or take a regulation away. They hurt one group and they help another. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, so Ron Paul's view of a limited government uh, makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting. Uh, I know that, uh, that Ron Paul has brought both people of, uh, from, if you want to label them this way, from the left and the right together. People that don't particularly care about politics became uh, interested in politics, became interested in Ron Paul, in large part because he, um, because of his honesty and his integrity, uh, but he's also given a great deal of thought to to what's wrong in our government, what's going on in our economy. It's not like he's just uh, trying to gain power, but he's really given a lot of thought. Ron Paul became interested in running for Congress and, and interested in politics when he studied Austrian economics and realized the virtues of free market economics and what's happened as a result of uh, of us getting rid of a lot of those free market policies. I think. I think that uh, Glenn Downs made a very good point uh, also today about the notion that 
that it's not free market economics. Uh, that's not what we have. It's, it's, it's far from it. And, of course, we've never had complete free market economics. But what happens a lot of times is you have this unholy alliance between uh, what Eisenhower warned us about, the military-industrial complex, uh, and large corporate interests that now have, as, as Dennis pointed out so well in today's conversation, uh, now basically owns the government. And we are back at a point, I believe, a point in time where we have taxation without representation. It is really what uh, we fought the first Tea Party. The first Tea Party was all about. I think in large part it's what the second Tea Party is all about as well, is taxation without without representation. Uh, and so, you know, we've, we fight wars and we're taxed. And the taxation, the biggest taxation, has nothing to do uh, with the exact taxes that are being levied on us. It is the taxation through inflation, uh, through the redistribution of wealth uh, from the middle class that Dennis talked about to Wall Street uh, and, to, and to government, quite frankly, because government keeps gobbling up a bigger, a bigger share of GDP. Um, and, and so I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't have uh, more time uh, for both Jeff and Glenn to contribute. We'll have them back. I was originally going to have Glenn and Jeff on together, but we got uh, made so little progress in terms of covering all the points, um, barely scratched the surface of Dennis Marker, that I invited him to stick around with us and have an exchange with, uh, with Jeff and Glenn as well. And I think that was valuable, and, and if all three are willing to do it, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. Uh, as far as uh, Eurasian Minerals goes, uh, we did talk to uh, the CEO, the president and CEO of Eurasian Minerals, uh, Mr. Cole. This is a company that I really do favor very much, and I'm talking as an investor in this company. They are a sponsor to this show. I want to be clear about that. That's not why I like them. I like them because they have um, they have uh, they're very well financed. That's good, but they're also they have these large property uh, targets that I think have the chance to become absolutely major wealth-creating mining projects in various countries around the world. And if there's something that a country like Haiti needs, uh, certainly would be a wealth-creating industry like mining uh, that would help the Haitian people and, of course, would help the shareholders of Eurasian as well. Uh, but I also like them because of this project generator model, which is probably the lowest uh, risk uh, model in the mining industry, and the mining industry is extremely risky. I do believe, though, that gold is certainly in the bull market of a lifetime now for reasons that I've talked about, uh, I think, again, touched on it in the first part of this uh, show today, that we are in this amazing, I think, really one-of-a-lifetime credit deflations, once sort of thing that comes along every 60, 70 years. And in each and every time that we've had these throughout the last 300 years, as Bob Hoy has pointed out, the real price of gold rises dramatically. Why is that so? Because people lose confidence in the fiat money, the money that is forced on us to be used by government at the point of a gun. The markets haven't chosen the dollar. We've been told we have to use the dollar. And what Ron Paul is proposing is a competitive system that allows us, uh, that allows gold to compete with Federal Reserve notes. And certainly, last week we talked to both Ron Paul and Lewis Lehrman on this show, and both of these gentlemen uh, are very much in favor of, of doing that. I would uh, certainly like to have more time to talk to Dennis Marker about his views on the monetary system. We did touch on that briefly. Uh, today when Glenn, uh, Glenn mentioned uh, the Federal Reserve and the role they play and the beggar thy neighbor currency devaluation, manipulation of markets in, in trade, uh, one of Dennis's main concerns is free trade. Uh, his main concerns is that we've rolled back uh, and pulled away a lot of the um, 
a lot of the, a lot of the policies that were in place uh, that benefited the the rich corporate interest at the expense of the America's middle class. Certainly, as someone who grew up in Ohio and I saw the demolition of the uh, of the working class in Ohio, I can certainly appreciate that. The best way to go, I have no doubt that Dennis and uh, Jeff and Glenn all have the same interest, and that is a thriving middle class, a free market middle class. I think even Dennis would agree with that. Uh, I, I think everybody wants fairness, and the question is, how do you get fairness the best way? Is it through government regulation, or is it through uh, free markets? And that's, of course, a discussion that will be ongoing. We are just about out of time. I do have to tell you that next week, uh, you don't want to miss next week's show. I think it's going to be a very, very interesting show. Uh, we have, um, who we got coming on here? We've got um, John Butler, John Butler uh, from England, and he's going to talk about what he believes is the inevitability of a return to the gold standard. He believes that's probably going to be forced on the United States. The U.S. will be the last country uh, to want to do it. Ron Paul, Lewis Lehrman last week, of course, talked about the virtues of going voluntarily back or forward to a gold system. Uh, but John Butler will be here to talk about that. And also Bill Bergman, a former Federal Reserve economist who wrote the Beige Book in Chicago, will be with us next week. And he had some really interesting observations about the unusual behavior of the monetary system M1 and cash right before 9-11. And he's suggesting that there may have been some people in high places that knew about 9-11, a fascinating issue. Uh, certainly you're not going to want to miss next week's show. Uh, with both of those gentlemen. Well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice American Business Channel. Thanks to Tacey Trump, uh, my producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you again for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.